When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You are listening to The Therapy Podcast with your host, Shloimi Balsam. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Therapy Podcast. I know we took off for a little while, but I miss the theme song so much we just had to come back on. We're studying confidentiality, ethical and legal issues. When it comes to therapy, there's an entire world at your fingertips. The responsibility is overwhelming. You sit down and think about what a client is entrusting to you. If it's your if you, if if you're just a friend and you're offering some peanut gallery advice, then you're not taking it the person that you're helping is not going to accept what you're saying as gravely as a therapist, as a counselor, as a psychotherapist. Once you have that title and that position, and that's why they've come, whatever you say carries a lot more weight. Hence, you have a fantastically more amount of responsibility because he's actually going to listen. In the coffee room, I'll say, okay, that's a point. Maybe I agree with it. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll listen to it. Maybe I won't. But the words of a counselor make a significant impact. And that is terrifying. The nice thing is, this is the reason why the uh, each state in states laws, regulations to keep the client safe and get, it provides guidelines for the counselor. So while it is confining and it's, it's it can be constricting and it's telling you what you cannot do and what you have to do, but these are actually, this is the code that is going to allow you to have clarity in what you should and shouldn't do. When working in a facility, they should also have guidelines and procedures when and when not to break confidentiality. So let's talk a little bit about that. What is confidentiality? Essentially, it's the client's right to privacy. And without it, 
it is very, very difficult to have an effective therapeutic session. You're confiding in me. You can trust me. And when I tell you that what you say doesn't leave this room, that's true. This is the safe place. This is the one place in your world where you can open up. Without that, it's, back, it's just a coffee room. Confidential, confidentiality is at the core of, effect, of effective therapy. It's the counselor's ethical duty to protect the client's private communication. There's also something called privileged communication. It's a legal concept that generally bars the disclosure of confidential communication in a legal proceeding. This depends on each state, but it gives a right to the client's privacy. What he's saying here can't just pop up in a courtroom without going through a lot of red tape. The constitutional right of individuals to be left alone and to, contro to control their personal information is privacy. And every single client deserves that. There is something called Fisher's Six-Step Ethical Practice Model, which is designed to protect confidentiality rights. Number one, preparation. Number two, you have to tell the client upfront the truth. Number three, obtain truly informed consent before making a disclosure. Number four, respond ethically to legal requests for disclosure. Number five, avoid the avoidable breaches of confidentiality. If you don't have to say something, don't. Anything that is going beyond and breaking the rules, going out of bounds, is destroying the relationship and any healing that is possible. So the less damage you can do, the less you can say, the less you can reveal, the less you can expose, the better. Confidentiality is a stone wall and breaking through it is going to bring consequences with that. And number six is to talk about confidentiality. However, there are limits to confidentiality. As important as it is, we have to know that there are times when it has to be broken. For example, this brick wall will stand, but if it's causing more harm than good, then it must be broken through. When clerical assistants handle confidential information, when a counselor consults with a superior, when a counselor is being supervised, when a client has given consent to break through the wall, to go beyond confidentiality, and when a client possesses danger to themselves or to others. Another case would be when a client discloses intention to commit a crime. 
when a counselor suspects abuse or neglect of a child or a vulnerable adult, doesn't have to be children. When a court orders a counselor to make records available, a court can knock down the wall from the other side. When it comes to telecommunication, there is a special set of privacy issues. For example, do not acknowledge that clients are receiving services or give out any information regarding the clients to any caller that's unknown. Strive to verify that you are actually talking to the intended person when you make or receive calls in which confidential information is going to be discussed. It doesn't mean you have to have a password, but use your logic and make sure you're talking to the person that you want to be, that you think you are, before engaging in anything private. Be aware that there's no way to prevent your conversation from being recorded or monitored by any unintended person. You don't have to be OCD and think that the KGB is tracking your phone. But take every precaution that you can to keep this a private line. Next, avoid making any comments you would not want your client to hear or you would not want to repeat in a legal proceeding. Watch what you say. This is the same as in a session. Over the phone, you have to be careful about every comment that you make. Be professional and cautious in talking about confidential information over the phone. Avoid saying anything off the record. Don't allow unauthorized persons to hear answering machine messages in your office as they're being left or retrieved. The answering machine should not be a public device. It should be a private voicemail that you listen to and no one's around. If you're talking to a client on a cell phone, you have to talk to them assuming that they are in Grand Central Station and it's quiet. Assume that they're on a stage in front of 100,000 people and there's a mic to the phone. Assume that it's not a private place. Realize that your conversation can be intercepted, can be intercepted by an unauthorized person. If you use a voicemail or an answering machine, ensure that your access codes are not disclosed to unauthorized people. You should be the only one that could get in there. It has to be confidential. If you use a cell phone to send a text, so be very careful in text messages. Every day in the news, there's someone who is getting caught in a web of whether it's truth or lies because of a text of a tweet or something that he sent out and immediately regretted it. Or was made to regret it later. When you're sending a text message to a client, be very mindful and ensure that, that, that their privacy is being protected. Type as if you're talking. I remember when they first started texting, there were uh, parental figures, pedagogues, who were concerned that kids were writing things that they wouldn't say. Be careful that this isn't the case. Type as if you're talking. When you're leaving a message on a machine, don't ex- disclose anything that's confidential because anyone might hear that. Assume that that's going to blare to all their roommates and 
playing on a you know PA system on the front lawn. Okay, now there's something called HIPAA, which is H-I-P-A-A. -A. Uh, it's an it's part of the uh, it's it's called the, it stands for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, instituted in 1996. Okay, and HIPAA includes mental health providers. That's us. What does it do? It promotes standardization and efficiency in the healthcare industry, and it gives patients more rights and control over their health information. The HIPAA privacy rule was developed out of a concern that transmission of healthcare information through electronic means could lead to wide gaps in protection of client confidentiality. We have to keep this under wraps. If you submit a claim electronically, even once, you are likely to be considered a covered entity for HIPAA purposes. You have to be familiar with the four standards of HIPAA. That's number one, privacy requirements, two, electronic transactions, three, security requirements, and four, national identifier requirements. When it comes, when this wall this confidentiality wall is being broken down. You have to realize that there are bricks falling on the other side. And you're not only here to protect your client anymore. If he is, he or she is planning some uh, a crime or endangering somebody or some abuse, we ha it is now your job to protect potential victims. Balancing the client's confidentiality and protecting the public is a major ethical challenge. The counselors have to exercise the ordinary skill and care of a reasonable professional to identify clients who are likely to do physical harm to someone else. You have to protect the third party. You have to take care of them. If you have come to the conclusion that they're dangerous, while still treating the dangerous client. The responsibility to protect the public from dangerous acts of violence from, from your client entails liability for civil damages when practitioners neglect this duty. When are you going to get in trouble? If you fail to diagnose or predict the dangerousness. If he fails to warn the potential victims of the violent behavior that's heading their way. If he fails to commit dangerous individuals, you can't keep it under wraps anymore. Or if he prematurely discharges dangerous people from a hospital. There were a number of legal precedents, cases that brought forth new vistas in the confidentiality terrains and it kind of rearranged the bricks in the confidentiality wall so that it'll be a more complete and effective rulebook. Tarasov's case taught us the duty to warn of harm or self, harm to self or others, and the duty to protect. Bradley's case taught us the duty not to 
negligently release a dangerous client. Jablotsky case taught us the duty to commit a dangerous individual. The Headland case extends the duty to warn anyone who might be near the extended victim, the intended victim, who might also be in danger if he plans on causing harm to Joe. Anyone around Joe is now also in potential danger. The Jaffe case taught us that communications between licensed psychotherapists and their clients are privileged and therefore protected from forced disclosure in cases arising under federal law. In cases involving the duty to warn and protect, what do you do? So first, consult with an attorney if you're not sure about your legal duty, as well as with colleagues or a supervisor. You'll probably go to a supervisor before getting your you know, buddy lawyer on the phone, but uh, this is definitely a legal situation that you have been placed in. Next, you have to know the relevant laws in your state. You have to inquire about a client's access to weapons, homicidal um, abilities, intentions, whether he has a specific victim in mind. You have to consider all appropriate steps to take and their consequences. Plan out your, your game plan. How are you going to deal with this and how is it going to be effective? Obtain prior medical behavioral history. Get a big picture about what's going on. One thing that we know as counselors is that you have to develop a bigger picture. The more that they talk about, the more you understand where they're coming from. But there are some things that either they haven't said, you haven't had the time to get them to say it, or it's not something that they feel comfortable disclosing. Find out anything that you can of their medical and behavioral history. Put that together with their, the story that you know and try to paint a broader picture. It's your job to know, find out, and follow the policy of your particular institution. In cases of immediate threat to the client, you can't hesitate. You have to take whatever steps you can to prevent harm to yourself. Not only are, is the client a factor, and the client's victim's a factor, and everyone around the client's victim factor. Don't forget about yourself. In cases involving the duty to warn and protect, document all actions you take and the rationale behind each of your decisions. Make referrals where appropriate. Counselors need to educate school employees about the risk factors associated with adolescent suicide. Counselors might institute peer assistance programs to help identify students at risk for suicide. It would be useful for school counselors to have increased access to training programs geared toward acquiring information about, the stu the stu about st student suicide in cases where school counselors make an assessment that a student is at risk for suicide, it's imperative that the student's parents or guardians be notified immediately. One of the first cases that addressed school counselor liability for student suicide was in 1991. It was the case of Azel versus the Board of Education. School counselors would gain a lot. They would do well to take the initiative in obtaining 
continuing education on recent developments in the field of student suicide to help limit their legal liabilities. Stay on top of the game. How do you assess suicide behavior? Good question. Take a direct verbal warning seriously. Assume that they're not messing around. Pay attention to previous previous suicide attempts. That is always a red flag, which remains forever. Identify clients suffering from depression. Be alert for feelings of hopelessness and helplessness. Monitor severe anxiety and panic attacks and explore the interpersonal stressors of loss and separation. By the way, when noticing hopelessness and helplessness, studies show that in general, people do not commit suicide when they are at rock bottom. They commit suicide when they are just above rock bottom, when they're just getting off the ground. Because when they are so depressed, they don't have the strength to commit suicide. It gets really dangerous when they have strength, but they're basically rock bottom. Ascertain whether there has been any recent diagnosis of a serious or terminal health condition. That can be a precursor to suicide. Ascertain whether there has been any suicide in the family. That kind of opens the door to the possibility and removes much of the stigma. Assess the client's support system. If there is no support system, then the client is at a greater risk. Determine whether the client has a plan. How are you going to do it? Identify clients who have a history of severe alcohol or drug abuse. Be alert to the client's behaviors whether he's giving away his prized possessions, uh, finalizing business affairs, or revisiting a will. Determine the history of psychiatric treatment. It's a big job. There's a lot to do. Confidentiality is very important, and we have to know that breaking it is as important as is keeping it. I hope you learned something. I know I did. And if you have any comments, questions, thoughts, or I don't know, any good jokes, send it over to askmetherapy at gmail.com and thank you for listening. Bye-bye.